Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thought out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low priced meat. So butcher box does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with Butcherbox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. <laughs> I love Butcherbox and I think other people would too. Butcherbox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. Butcherbox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Hey everyone, before we continue with this episode, I want to tell you about another podcast. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to watch your house burn down or be attacked by an alligator or learn that your spouse hired someone to kill you? If you're dying to know, then What Was That Like is the podcast for you. What Was That Like is filled with real stories about the most surreal experiences of people's lives. On the show, host Scott Johnson dives deep with his guests into the unbelievable situations they found themselves in, like animal attacks, plane crashes, winning the prices right, and more. The show brings you tons of completely surreal, completely true stories, all told through the lens of the person who actually experienced it. Check out some of these episodes about wild and gripping stories to gain some insight on what it was like to, say, be a professional bridesmaid or lose a leg in a shark attack. Susan, I think you'd be a really good professional bridesmaid. And you'd be really good at losing a leg in a shark attack. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> so if you want to hear some disturbing and inspiring firsthand stories, you need to check out What Was That Like? Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know even the most bizarre tales are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to this week's Proof Sidebar. This week, we're discussing Episode 9 in our series on Lee Clark and Kane's story, covering the testimony of alleged eyewitness Charlie Childers. We had a lot of questions from listeners this week about Charlie, and some of those we'll be getting to in a later episode, when we cover what happened when we found Charlie and got to speak to him for ourselves. But we wanted to address some of those questions now, and I'm here with Kevin Fitzpatrick and Jacinda Davis to talk about what we learned in episode nine. Hi guys. Hey Susan. Hey Susan. So this week we heard about Charlie Childers, who was the star witness for the prosecution, especially as far as Lee Clark is concerned, and about what he had to say at trial, or as we heard in the episode, how we kind of don't get to hear at trial what Charlie actually has to say. 
I thought this episode to me is one of the most compelling of the season because Charlie's such an important character from just the beginning of the investigation. I have to find Charlie in order to figure out what really happened. That's the only way to really get the answer as to what happened. Charlie is the only evidence against Lee. So we have uh, claims that there was a gang notebook that lists Lee's name on it. But also they, the story is that list other names as well. So there's no particular reason to link Lee to the murder based on that. And then you have Angela Bruce, who says that Lee Clark was inside the bedroom with Brian and Kane when the shot went off. But the state's theory, the one that they commit to fully, is that Lee was outside the house, either shot him or like gave moral support for Kane to shoot him. But they're adamant that Lee was outside the house, outside the bedroom window. And the only piece of evidence that can support that is Charlie Childers. We spent a lot of time looking for Charlie. And when we realized it was going to be harder to find him than we thought, it became really, really important to find the court appointed interpreter. And also with her, I remember, Susan, we went to her house. I think, Kevin, you were down there with us too. We, we went to her house like three, four times and could never quite catch her at home and, and finally connected with her by phone. And, and she, we, you know, we arranged to go meet her and but that interview with her was sort of astounding in many ways. Um, and we've had a lot of people writing in about her interview and what she said and feeling the frustration in her voice while she reread the transcript and, and also admitting someone wrote in saying, you know, it was really impressive that she would admit how she felt like feeling inadequate and, and the defense saying maybe she's not good enough and, and her being young at the time and not having the confidence to say, listen, this, this isn't right. We can't do this. One of the things we talked about in the car after you interviewed her was she didn't know that they were still in jail. Yes, that's true for basically everyone we spoke to is not closely connected to the case. Um, the jurors thought they were all out. Most of the witnesses thought they were both the Kane and Lee were out. Everyone seems to assume that they have been, you know, home for a decade or more now, which is not the case. And I think that moment, I mean, I wasn't doing the interview with her, but I think as you guys described it in the car, that moment made her interview with you even more difficult because she realized it still wasn't over. And I think what happened that day, it, it sort of jumped on her even more because of that. Yeah. I can't imagine professionally how difficult that must have been to to go into a scenario like that with stakes so high and to have a job that you feel competent and trained and certified to do. And then to find out that like this is not your job. What you're doing here is not what you are trained for, are we're supposed to be doing, you're suddenly here trying to translate for a man who does not speak the language that you're a translator for, but he speaks just enough where you keep, keep going. And she said, she told us, she's like, now I'd be like, no, this is not doable. We can't do this. But at that point in her career, she felt like she couldn't back out and she was just trying to make the best of things. The most difficult day at the office ever on your first day at the office, basically. Exactly that. And she also told us that she was assured that, you know, this is not the only evidence against the boys, which is ironic because it, it literally is. It's not even just the most important bit. In many ways, it is the only piece of evidence against Lee Clark. Um, if you don't want to believe that Lee was in the bedroom, like Angela says, then all you've got is Charlie to go on. The thing that struck me as so bizarre about sort of Charlie's testimony, sort of going over what was said and what was happening in court it seemed like the prosecution and the judge kept giving like, well, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's, like They were trying to come up with a solution, you know, almost to like fix like a crazy problem of, of not getting like a soda machine to work or something. Let's try this. It's eyewitness testimony. And they just kept sort of pushing the, 
the line of, of how to get him to communicate. And it just seems so important that you shouldn't have been trying some kind of patchwork in order to come up with a way to get him to testify. It is likely a scenario they had not encountered before. I mean, it's Floyd County, so maybe they have. I'm not going to say it, it, it hadn't happened previously, but this is not something lawyers are trained to expect or know how to deal with. So I get the sense from the transcript, there's a lot of flailing and they're like, oh God, how do we get out of this? This is like excruciating. This is really frustrating and long. And we just need to get through this some way or another. And the defense was objecting. Rex Abernathy, Lee's attorney at one point, at several points is like, your honor, this can't keep going on. We've tried a hundred times to ask him who was there and he will not say my client was there. And we can't understand a word he says. And the prosecution's like, don't speak for me. I understand things just fine here, which is clearly not the case. Um, we had a question from a listener about if Gola Burton's father, Mike Burton, was able to communicate with Charlie and had a history with him, why didn't they use him at trial? And the answer is that under Georgia law, in order to translate for someone who's hard of hearing, you have to be certified. And Gola Burton had certifications. Her father did not. So even though he would have been the better person in this case, because he didn't have the certifications that are required by statute, he couldn't actually translate at trial. Whereas Gola didn't know Charlie's history, hadn't worked with him before, didn't know her dad had been his teacher. Um, she did have the certifications. And I think it's important to kind of paint the picture. You know, Gola just comes in for the day or days that she's needed. She's not sitting through the court. She doesn't know a lot about the case. She has to remain objective. So she's literally coming in just to translate. So she's thrown into the situation, not knowing anything, not really knowing the story, not knowing who may or may not be guilty or anything. She has nothing in this. There's nothing at stake for, for her other than just translating and trying to do the best job she can. And yeah, I, I just can't, I can't imagine what it was like. And like you were saying, Kevin, to find out 20 some years later that both these kids are in, in prison, I, I, I think we ruined her day, if not her week and month. Yeah, I think she was damaged by that. It's, um, it's a difficult scenario. And there are good reasons to have an interpreter in a situation come in blind, so to speak, to not have the background and not have the extraneous information that can influence how they're interpreting. But in this case, it severely undermined her ability to do basics. If she'd had more background information, she would have had a better time of establishing communication with Charlie. Um, it's not that he can't talk at all. He can communicate. He has some communication ability. But if you don't have the context or experience with him, you're not going to get far at all. Yeah, she needed the background to be able to try and understand how to best communicate with them. She didn't have that. I mean, looking back in hindsight, she almost needed to spend a day with them just to learn how to communicate with them. But Or decades, like her father had, more so. On the other hand, let's say she did have that background information and she knows why they're trying to get him to identify Lee and they know why they're trying to say who's outside the window that could have clouded her interpretation. And I think the fact that she's very clear, like he does not know who Daryl is. He does not know Lee. I don't know what he's talking about. Like to me, that makes Charlie's testimony even um, more important because she's not reading into it. The fact remains that she very clearly is saying, even in court, I can't understand what he's saying. And you're not interpreting testimony then. I don't know how anyone can reasonably say that they can be certain that she's relaying what he's communicating. Yeah, especially when there's no video to later go back and look at. The episode title was Hearsay. And that was because of how critical the hearsay rules should have been in this trial. 
given all the troubles they had with interpreting um, and understanding Charlie, because the jury ultimately does hear the story about Lee Clark being outside the window and running across the front yard, but they don't hear it because of Charlie. Charlie never gets across that version of events. He mentions Daryl, Daryl running, Daryl outside, but then we'll go back and say, Kane, only Kane, our story, only story outside. And he mentions looking at a window and there are bits and pieces scattered through, but there's never a time where Charlie's able to say anything like the story that the jury walks away having heard. And the only reason they get that is because they hear it from Dallas Battle, who is the first one to testify and gets up there and says, I talked to Charlie through Wayne. Wayne was able to translate. And Charlie told me that he was looking out the window and he saw a boy run by and that he'll be able to identify this boy. If you take away that testimony, the jury doesn't hear the story. And that testimony was absolutely hearsay, like just not even a, a close question here. It should not have been allowed, both because of Wayne, who does not back up Battle's testimony. Wayne says he can't really speak to Charlie, so he could not interpret for him. And in fact, he says he didn't. He let Charlie write down a piece of paper what he wanted to say because Wayne could understand him. And then you have Charlie, who doesn't say anything really understandable at all. And yet the judge allows Battle to give the hearsay version of events from both Wayne and Charlie. It's one of the oddest scenarios of an eyewitness that I've ever encountered. Yeah. And it's strange too, because the judge never really explains why he ends up allowing this. Now, under Georgia law, there is an exception where a verbal, or I guess not in this case, well, an identification of someone, that itself is declared not hearsay under Georgia law. So if Battle got out there and said, yes, Charlie Childers identified this picture on this lineup, that's permissible. He could have said that Charlie pointed out Lee Clark on a picture. What he was not allowed to say is anything else he said about what Charlie saw, how he saw it, how it came about, or Wayne's ability to translate for him. But the judge doesn't even grapple with it. The, the defense objects and he just says overruled and they move on. Speaking of Dallas Battle, one listener wrote in who I think is from Roan named Casey wrote in and said, you know, in the episode, we say that Dallas Battle, when he went to interview Charlie, didn't even realize that Charlie was deaf. And so Wayne was there, the interpreter, like you were just talking about. But for anyone who lived in that area, everyone knew Charlie. Charlie worked at the Silver Creek, and this listener found it very, very hard to believe that Dallas Battle did not know Wayne and Charlie and did not know ahead of time that Charlie was hard of hearing. I'll admit I am very skeptical of that as well. I, I did not speak to anyone who could confirm that Dallas Battle did in fact know Charlie was deaf, but it seems somewhat unlikely based on what we know of Dallas Battle and about Charlie, who everyone knows, it seems like. Charlie was a well-known figure in Silver Creek. But and apparently Dallas is. Battle hadn't met. Yeah, still is. Still is. As we drove around asking, does anybody know Charlie? Everyone knows of Charlie. Nobody knew exactly where he was. <laughs> We've also been getting a lot of questions and comments this week about what Charlie heard, the discrepancy between what the Bowling family remembers hearing, which was like a thud or a speaker blowing out. They describe it, no one there really identified it as a gunshot. Yet when we heard Charlie's testimony, Gola interpreted that he did hear something and it scared him. So we've gotten a lot of questions about what did Charlie say? And that's one of the things we'll find out later. Right now, we know what the bowling said they heard and, you know, they remember Charlie sitting there and they interpreted that as because he didn't hear anything. Um, then we hear what Charlie said in court, which is he did hear something, but he stayed in the living room. And eventually when we do talk to Charlie, we'll find out 
exactly what he did or didn't hear. I think one of the confusing things or the interesting things for listeners, right, is for me too, when I first got into it is he's deaf. So how did he hear anything? But I guess as you guys sort of uncover, it's not exactly that simple. And a lot of people who are deaf do have some residual hearing. Um, It's not functional for everyday life, but extremely loud noises they can hear which could be the case here, or it could be the vibrations. Whatever it was, it's interesting to me that Charlie, from his testimony, to the extent we can understand it, he does identify the sound of the gunshot. He knows immediately what the loud sound is, whereas others in the trailer seem to have not recognized what it was. We also heard from Brooke, a listener who's also hard of hearing, and she wrote in to point out something I've actually heard before from others I've talked to in the case, that the idea that Charlie was just sitting there in the living room makes less sense not more sense given his deafness because when the commotion starts happening everyone starts running around charlie's only way of understanding what's happening is to go and look for himself the natural expected inclination would not be to sit there and do nothing it would be to find out what's going on amid all the the chaos and concern so it is strange if that's what charlie did as the prosecution alleges that he just sat there. And in fact, that's actually the closing argument that the prosecutor makes is that use your common sense. Charlie's not uh, able to hear the gunshot. So therefore he would just sit there in the living room doing nothing, which is why he saw Lee Clark and no one else did. Okay. So what do you guys have set up for next episode that the listeners can look forward to? Well, next week we're discussing the rest of what was covered at the trial, um, including Lee Clark's alibi for the night that Brian was shot. I remember driving around with you guys talked about that alibi. So. <laughs> That'll be interesting for everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Proof Sidebar. We're back Monday with episode 10. If you have any questions for future Sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we are Proof Crime Pod. You can find me on Twitter at The View from LL2 and on Instagram at SOO Semp. And you can now find Jacinda on Instagram too at Jacinda Proof. <laughs> <laughs>